And uh, without further ado, I want you to help me welcome Jim S. from Pinellas County, Florida. I just want to let you good folks in on a little secret. Jim is to be married on Sunday, and his fine Connie is here in the multicolored Joseph's coat dress on the front row. Welcome, Connie. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Well, I'm not sure what it's about, because I feel real nervous and, and excited, and I don't know if that's about Sunday or if it's about today, but we'll... <laughs> We'll go on anyway. In the mornings, I get up and I look down to see if my shoes are on and I have pants on. So I've been doing that about 10 days. I'm an alcoholic, drug addict, compulsive eater, Al-Anon, and my name's Jim. Hi, family. It's really nice to be here. It's nice to see old friends and hopefully some new friends. Um, I always feel really comfortable at AA meetings and especially these. It is home to me. Um... They always tell me, I heard from a group in Texas once that if you don't share your sobriety date, more than likely you don't have one. Well, my sobriety date in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is 1980, uh, October uh, 12th. My Al-Anon date is that, uh, that same year. I don't remember the day. My Overeaters Anonymous date is July 14th. I've been abstinent three years. Um, well... We talk about denial being one of the hallmarks of this disease. When I entered Overeaters Anonymous, I'd been in AA two years, and I didn't know I was fat. And uh, and I weighed 600 pounds, and I'm six foot tall. Thank you. But believe me, if you can weigh 600 pounds and don't know you're fat, that's denial. I uh, I consider myself to be the compulsive's compulsive, the addict's addict. I always say I do something once, it's a habit, and I do it twice, and I'm addicted. And I believe that's true. Um, I was born, it says in the big book I'm supposed to share my experience, strength, and hope, and I, I will try to do that. I was born uh, in a little town along the Mississippi River, about 40 miles from where Mark Twain was born, north. And uh, I fondly consider myself a river rat. I like that. Um, I come from a dysfunctional home. Uh, my father wasn't an alcoholic, uh, but he is a compulsive eater. And all the insanity and the double messages I lived with. What I remember about my childhood is uh, feeling really alone. I remember primarily wanting mostly just to be loved. And to feel like people understood me and I could understand them. I just wanted to be able to communicate and feel loved. I didn't really feel loved in my home. I, I know I was, but I didn't feel that way. My favorite spots in my early childhood were places up along the river. And uh, out on the bluffs, I'd go make little nests in the tall grass. And a little fire. Sometimes uh, I can recall one time going down along the banks. And uh, I really wanted to have some some peace of mind and some serenity, and I didn't know what that was then, but I knew what the, I know what the feeling is now. That's what I wanted. And I can remember going down there after reading, you know, about Mark Twain and all those things and building a little fire and, and taking a hook and throwing it in, tying it around my toe and settling back to lay down and relax and get some inspiration. And, and in about five seconds, I would really be bored. And 
it's the truth. You know, I'm laying here in places that inspired writers and all these things, and I, I never could really understand what was what was missing, you know, with me, uh, because obviously there's something was. I've traveled all over the country doing the same thing uh, before I got into recovery. I went up to Canada once just to uh, so I could kind of get with like what the, a fella wrote about Deer Slayer on a lake with the mist lifting up, you know, and early in the morning, all quiet. And as you're steeply canoeing across the lake, you can't hear a sound, you know, and your paddle dips in and out and there's no noise. And if a bass jumps on the other side of the lake, you can hear the splash because it's so quiet. Well, I went to places like that and it took about 10 seconds to get bored there. And uh, I knew there was, I always wondered what was the difference between when I read it, it sounded, it, it would sound so good. And when I'd get there and do those things, I, I never could get into it very much. I, Back to my early childhood. I Let me finish with what I did there. I continued just feeling a lot of discomfort inside in my younger days. And uh, as a lot of things that grew, I didn't know what the discomfort was. It was just an overwhelming feeling of, of being really uncomfortable. I didn't feel that people understood me. Uh, my friends always seemed to be interested in different things. I never seemed to get enough attention. My parents gave me 24 hours of attention a day. It wasn't enough. The pain got so bad... I rarely slept. Um, I think I've been an insomniac since I was around seven. And the number of nights I've seen the, you know, the sun come up has been very numerous. Around the age of ten, the pain started getting so bad that in the night, I couldn't even lay still in bed. Um, and I started taking walks out along the river. It was about four or five miles to the, to the river from my home. And I'd walk out on that bridge, and I'd really want to jump because it hurt so bad. And probably that was one of the hardest times of my life, because I never wanted to die as much as I did then. And uh, I can remember standing there at night at 2 or 3 in the morning and looking down in the water and wondering why I didn't have the courage to jump. And I did this uh, until I had my first slip, which was around the age of 11. That's when I found alcohol. Now, I didn't believe in drinking uh, in public, and I didn't really particularly go with those that did. I used alcohol purely as a safety valve. Um, my parents, my father made wine about, um, I don't remember, it was 80 or 120 gallons a year, and uh, he made it for my mother, who had low blood pressure and so forth. And uh, <laughs> we always had some left over. They did not consume it all. And when I first started drinking, the first thing I did at 11 years old, was siphon off five gallons of my favorite wine and stick it way back underneath the staircase so I'd have what I wanted. And I never knew that that was not the way you did things. I Nobody told me. And uh, what I'd do is when those nights would come, when I wanted to go out and, and jump off the bridge, I'd go downstairs and I'd put on some Igor Stravinsky, depending on how crazy I really felt. And I'd siphon off two quarts of wine. And I'd chug the first one and I'd go up and listen to Igor and cry because I couldn't write music like that. Now, if I could, I don't know if I'd want to write like he did anyway, but that's a, that's what I would do. And I would drink until I knew I could go to sleep, and that would be the only way I could sleep. And that night's sleep would get me through for however long. And I would keep going until, again, the pain got so bad, and then I'd do the same procedure. Um, God gave me a lot of nice gifts, and I'm real grateful for those. And in some way, they've they've put off my recovery because... I usually could do what I wanted to do, 
I was intelligent enough and I was uh, gifted enough physically that if I want to go out and do some type of physical activity, I did it well and uh, well enough to excel better than most. I never had to deal much with those kind of failures. The failure I felt inside was me. I never really liked me. I never felt loved. And you know about the pain that I'm sharing about. Um, I can remember deciding I wanted to be uh, an archer. So I started, there's nothing compulsive about this, but I used to, I started shooting. I'd shoot three to four hours a day, every day. And uh, I did that for a year and a half, and I did get very good. And uh, But you know, it's, it's just like uh, trying to go up to Canada and, and be with James Fenimore Cooper. You know, you, you win the awards and you do the things, and I'd be standing there and still feel empty inside. And I wouldn't know what was wrong. I, I knew there was something wrong with me, but I had a, no idea what it was. I had the same experiences when I ran for student council president and got that. And uh, I was president of this and president of that when I was in high school. And it never made me feel better, but I couldn't understand why it wouldn't. It just didn't make any sense to me at all. Um, my disease was in full force by then, and I was still only drinking, as I told you. But I maintain I was crazy a long time before I ever took a drink. And uh, the insanity that that drives people to drink, I was using maybe maybe from the time I was three or four, maybe I was born with it. I don't know. But I carried it all through that. I went to college at the age of 17. And um, I decided to go into medicine when I failed calculus. Now, you know, there's one thing you can't do if you if you uh, fail a class in college, and that is be a physician. Now, because uh, everybody knows physicians have to make straight A's. And I was doing a little bit too much drinking and too much partying, and I failed this course. I even played cards with the guy that flunked me, and I never could understand that. But uh, he said he loved me, and I just thought he well anyway. Uh, <laughs> but I sure do remember that week. I latched myself up down the bottom of the basement and uh, stayed in my room with a couple quarts of vodka and cried a lot and felt like I was going to die any minute. And it was during that week of isolation that I decided to be a physician. Now, so I started out to be a physician. Unfortunately for you guys, I made it. <laughs> but it's, uh, uh, having some of those gifts that God gave me, I did do well. I made straight A's from then on, and I did get in school. Um, I still had all the same difficulties. I used alcohol when I couldn't stand it anymore. For the first uh, year and a half, two years in undergraduate school, I'd get sick twice a year, and it was always at the same time. The fourth time I did that, I realized there was something else going on in my life, and it, I finally figured out it must have to do with pressure of some kind, and instead of getting sick at that time, the next year, I just took it off for a week. I quit getting sick. I didn't get physically ill anymore. I just went out and partied and drank for a week and forget, forgot school. I got married um, the year I was a senior in undergraduate school and uh, to a hometown girl. Uh, she and I were, she's three and a half days older than I, I was. We were born in the same hospital, grew up together in a little town. And, uh, well, I hope this wedding I'm having is different than that one. Now, that was a nice wedding, but it's just, I got so stoned the night before, I wasn't sure what was happening the next day. And after the I do's were done, I proceeded to get uh, tanked further. And it never occurred to me that my new wife had problems because she kept right up with me and told me she never drank before in her life. But I didn't understand any of those things. Um, that summer, a real interesting thing happened, too, with my alcohol. Um, we lived in a 
a little cottage that was her grandfather's up on a, a big bluff overlooking the Mississippi River for that summer. And uh, I wrecked our first car on a July 5th, it would have been. It was early the morning of July 5th, following the July 4th, after cases of malt liquor and gallons of gin and, and wine. And uh, the thing that always disturbed me about this, I could understand somebody racing into their driveway from outside and totaling their car, but I did it coming out. And it's true. I knew I'd probably lose my license. That's what was going through my mind. You know, I'd never be able to get insurance again. And uh, the insurance adjuster... I told this new car, and they just couldn't believe that anybody could total their car in their own driveway. So they they sent up their big insurance adjuster from uh, from down in Quincy, about 30 miles away, and and he was up there, and he was being a little smart, and I just knew I was getting the axe. And as he left, I thought, oh gee, you know. And uh, on the way out, he hit the same tree I did and tore the whole right front fender off his car. And. Uh, God's been watching out for me a long time. There, there was no increase in my rates. They sent a check right away. <laughs> and, uh, I don't, that's true. And, um, got back to school, graduated that next year. Graduated, I think, probably top 10% of my class. And, uh, I remember that was a real letdown too. You know, not very many people do that. I've already been accepted to medical school. And I figured, boy, this will really be neat. And it's like uh, I was all up for that, and I got my diploma, and it was like, wow. You know, same feeling I had when I was a little laying on the banks of the river. And uh, I was still using my alcohol for a safety valve. I didn't drink all the time, but when I drank Katie Bar the Door, I started out with two quarts of wine, you know. And um, if I couldn't drink enough to make me feel okay, I didn't drink. And I didn't like being out of control, so I didn't want to get so drunk that I passed out. I don't think I've ever done that. I got sick twice. Um, you know, the amount of control that it takes to drink two two bottles of J.W. Dant and not throw up is tremendous. Uh, I remember that night out at the lake. It took a lot of work. And uh, anyway, I started medical school, had the same kind of things, was successful there. Uh, thank God for the... I, I thought the parties in undergraduate school were something. I never realized what they were like in medical school flagpoles. Anyway, uh, got finished with that, uh, decided I was going to practice up in uh, Michigan. And uh, since I knew that, I thought, well, maybe I can get an internship somewhere in Florida and see what the semi-tropical climate's like. So I came down to Florida and it was so good down there, I stayed. And um, my disease progressed by this time. I don't know how much I was weighing, probably 350 pounds. And I wasn't drinking daily, but when I drank, I drank. And uh, I practiced doing that. You know, John Wayne, he was a two-fisted drinker, so was I. Sometimes I say, if it wasn't for John Wayne and Superman, I'd been okay. I, I know that's not true, but sometimes I see that. Uh, such good leading examples. And um, things just kept progressing and progressing. I can remember sitting on the edge of my bed about six, seven years ago, and... Um, Lived in a nice big house, like I suppose a lot of us do. Had five cars, Rolls Royce, you know, uh, Fiat, big station wagon, van, 1930 Model A Ford. I mean, I like those kind of things. Um, I was, I suppose I had probably one of the biggest practices in town. Very successful on all outside appearances. That's just in the side, inside I was dying and I didn't know why. I'd sit there on the, my edge of the, 
the bed at night. I spent a lot of time in my bedroom. Matter of fact, so much I had a study built on the back of it. Um, and I'd sit there feeling like the world was passing me by, and I didn't know why. Here I was supposed to have everything that made people okay. You know, and I had a good job, and I enjoyed what I did. And uh, I'm out there saving lives and stamping out disease, and Marcus Welby would be proud, you know. And But I'm sitting there feeling like nothing's happening in my life, and I couldn't understand that. I got mononucleosis in 1980, and uh, I'm also a compulsive worker. You know, I'm a professional drinker. I, I've i never met anybody better than I am. I've met some people as good. I'm a professional eater. I'm a professional knower. You know, I do everything with that same vengeance. And uh, I did my drugs that way, too. At about this time, about a year prior to this, the time I'm telling you about, um, in 1980, I was shooting every now and then up to five and 600 milligrams of Demerol or crack. And uh, I didn't like to use it much because I figured they could really throw me away with that. And I wouldn't mainline it because only junkies did that. I, I shot it parentally, you know, and that seemed to make it okay. When, the muscles I haven't shot aren't there, you know. And uh, I still have trouble with some of them because I, I damaged them so bad. Um, but I had this mononucleosis, and I was, I'm was i a compulsive worker, too, obviously. And I didn't know how to shut that off. I knew I was going to have to rest to get better. So I didn't use sleeping pills, but I had my wife get me some two and all three grains because I figured if I took enough of those, I could sleep even if I didn't want to. And in 20, about 21 hours, I took 24. Now, I should have died. I didn't, but should have. And I woke up about three days later. I say kind of woke up. And my wife wasn't there. And uh, I didn't know where she was. It took me three more days to figure out where she was. She didn't leave any notes or anything. But that's when something really neat happened in my life. And as far as I know, it's the first time it ever occurred. And I can remember that, that night just as vividly as if I'm there right now, laying there in my bed, this big king-size bed, weighing God knows how much because... Scales in my office only go to 350, so um, I guess around 450, 500 pounds, and crying, feeling totally hopeless, having no idea what to do. And I says, God, please help me. And it's like what happened then, as I look back on it now, it's like this big giant stone wheel started turning in my life. It must be five stories tall and way tons. Because ever since that night it started, it hadn't stopped. And I haven't been able to stop it. I tried. It's just got so much momentum. Sometimes it rolls awful slow. Well, five days after that, um, I went up to Willingway. And um, I stayed there for six weeks. And that was the beginning of my recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I came home, and I would have stood on the corner... And done anything you told me to on my head or any other way. I really wanted to get well. I remember hearing up at Willingway, they told me that the physicians didn't have much of a chance to get well. Because they were so stubborn and so smart. And uh, But he said, they said one thing that gave me some hope. And that was that once a physician gets it, they usually keep it. They have a real high rate of recovery once they get it. And I thought, oh boy, I'm going to get this. Now, being this compulsive compulsive that I am, I went after AA just like I went after everything else. And I was a scholar in no time. And uh, I never, you know, they told me that 
the people that got well or cured went out and got drunk again, so I never got well or cured. And it's like when I read the part about how we can't afford the brainstorm and we can't afford the anger, I just decided I'd never get angry, so I didn't do that either. And I, I'd i made that decision earlier in my life, so it wasn't real hard to do it this time either. And um, I worked my steps hard, and when my sponsor told me to kiss the floor, I kissed the floor. And um, about a year and a half after I was in program, and I had pretty much a year, year and a half of really, really nice Nice program, nice nice living. I even slept at night. First time in my life, almost from the day I went into treatment, I started sleeping. That has always amazed me. I know why today, but I sure didn't then. And um, I had a lot of, of movement in the spiritual situation, and that was terrific. But about a year and a half or so into the program, I started losing my momentum, and I couldn't understand it. And I shared about it at meetings. And I asked, and nobody could really give it to me. And I prayed, and I meditated about it. And what started to come to me was, I started to understand that my primary addiction was food. And I had never dealt with it. And all this time that I had been sober from alcohol, I had gained 100 pounds that year. And this put me up around the 600 mark. And um, while I wasn't inebriated on alcohol or drugs, I was inebriated on food. And I started to realize why my growth was slowing down. It was like I had an anchor around my spiritual rump, and I was trying to drag this big anchor through all kinds of muck and myrrh, and it just, it was real tough going. Well, I knew instantly what to do about it. I knew that I needed to go to a 12-step program for eating, because uh, I knew the, the one I was in worked uh, for drinking and drugs, and I knew it worked for eating, too. Now, I don't want you people to think that I'm just so spiritual you know, everything comes easy. It took me four months after I made that decision to get to my first OA meeting. And um, I got to my first OA meeting, I think it was around the 2nd of July of 1982. And I became abstinent July 14. And this is when my recovery really started. And thank God I had these 12 steps that we have, and I had you people. I used to sit in meetings prior to the time I got into Overeaters Anonymous. And I'd listen to people tell about their uh, rehabilitation experiences and the camaraderie they had with the people they went through and the pain they went through. And uh, I really couldn't identify that. I had very little withdrawal from the Demerol and alcohol. Uh, it was very minimal. And I understand today. I didn't understand then. But when people would sit and share about this camaraderie and the pain they went through, I really couldn't identify with that. And I, I figured maybe, maybe I didn't drink long enough, you know. And I wasn't willing to go back and do more. Well, believe me, when I quit eating, it all started happening. I went on what they call gray sheet in Overeaters Anonymous, which is a average of between a five and seven hundred calorie diet. Now, I weighed six hundred pounds. I cleared this with my physician too, because I I tried real hard after I got in recovery not to take care of myself anymore. I did try to ask for help. It's just how many people know what to do with somebody who weighs six hundred pounds. And uh, I was still working about ten hours a day. I'd cut it down. All right. And I was two and a half months into this situation. I was sitting in my office at a quarter after 12. And it was like somebody hit me in the head with a sledgehammer. And I didn't know what happened. I didn't have any chest pain or any of this. I just felt like I was going to fade away. Completely fade away. Got very weak. I felt like I had an internal tremor. And immediately I figured, well, I must be having a sugar reaction. Because I usually ate at 1130. I had my girls do a blood, stat, blood sugar on me and it was 95. And these attacks would come and go about every five minutes. 
and they just would feel like I was going to die. There was no pain. After about 25, 30 minutes of that, and it wasn't getting better, a friend of mine from AA just happened to stop in the office, right? And he took me to the hospital. And they did an electrocardiogram, and I had some inverted T waves, and they were just sure I was having a coronary. I mean, if you got somebody laying there feeling like I did 600 pounds, you'd probably assume he had one anyway. And uh, I remember they came at me with the Dilaudid. And uh, I says, what are you doing? And they says, well, we're going to give you this Dilaudid, doctor. And I said, uh, no, you're not. And they said, well, doctor, yes, we are. And I says, no, you're not. And they said, well, you know what this does to your chances of survival if you don't get some relaxation. I said, I don't care. Because I really thought I was going to die. I mean, it really felt that way. And it was okay. But I told him, I said, you know, if I die, I'm going to die straight. I really meant that from the bottom of my heart. The only thing is, I didn't die, obviously. And uh, <laughs> it's like I share with some of my patients sometimes. You know, it, it must be a, a certain experience in our lives to die. But one of the worst ones, I think, is feeling like you're going to die and not. It's like feeling like you're going to go crazy and you don't, you know. Um It'd been so much easier just to do either one. And, but it didn't happen. I was so weak at the time. Even when I left the hospital two weeks later, I couldn't walk from here to the end of the hall. They did not find out what was wrong with me. My heart seemed to be okay. It, the myocardium just seemed to be really sensitive. Uh, the T-way straightened out after 12 hours of bed rest. Um, incidentally, in ICU, I slept better, had lower blood pressure, lower pulse rate, and all that stuff, and anybody else in the whole ICU unit, and I didn't take any medicine at all. And uh, they didn't particularly care for that, but it felt good to me. But uh, What happened started happening then was that I had all these bad feelings coming out, and I still didn't know what they were. And they hadn't let up a bit. They were going on 24 hours a day. And I'd have these intermittent attacks where they'd get worse. And uh, many, many nights during that time, I'd fall asleep on my knees at the side of my bed because I was too, I felt too afraid to lay in my bed. I just couldn't stay there. And I'd fall asleep on my knees. I'd wake up in the morning that way, hardly could walk. And that happened time and time again. And I started feeling so much fear that I wasn't sure I could stay sane any longer. I just didn't know how anybody could endure that kind of pain and live. And it, it wasn't real physical pain. It was just this feeling like I was going to die all the time. And it never stopped. And it would get worse. That's what I can understand. And I went to every doctor there was in the county. And nobody could really share anything with me. I called up people at Emory and at Duke. And uh, I called up Mayo's and some places out in California and explained the situation. And none of them could, could give me any uh, inspiration on this either. They all volunteered to take a look at me, but nobody could help. I was working my program so hard I didn't know how to work it anymore. I mean... And thank God for habitual training, because I got on my knees every morning, and some mornings, like I say, I was like that anyway, uh, and I asked God to help me through this day, just to give me the strength to walk through this pain. And, you know, a neat thing I didn't realize till after a lot of this was, I never thought of drinking. It never occurred to me to take a, dr- a drug. I never wanted to eat either. Thank God. You know, I didn't have to do that. I still went to as many meetings as I could go to, feeling the way I felt. And I tried every different thing you can think of. I tried reading the big book as soon as I'd wake up in the morning. I'd roll out of bed instantly, uh, trying to capture something so I wouldn't have another day of, of the way I'd had all the time. And nothing worked. The fear kept getting worse and worse. And it's, it's like 
like being agoraphobic with a lot of other stuff extra. And um, still nobody could find out any. The stuff that I let them do to me, I really appreciate what I do to patients. Uh, goodness. You know, when you feel that bad, you're willing to go through a lot. And I finally had gotten to the place in November. Uh, I got this attack, I think, in September or something. Um, a little bit just prior to this time. I was feeling like I was dying every minute of the day. And the fear was so bad. I can remember being in my office and people sitting down and telling me how they were so afraid they couldn't go to the shopping store. They couldn't get out of the house to go to the store. They couldn't get in the car to drive down the street. They had all the shades pulled. This was sober. You know, people, just agoraphobic people. And I remember saying to myself, boy, you'd have to be sick to be that way. You know? I was sick. I wouldn't pull the shades, and I wouldn't not go. But I thought I was going to die all the time I did. And uh, I had two really good, really close friends die in a period of two weeks during that time, too. A third one died in, in November. And I was sitting here really dealing with my mortality on almost a minute basis. I think I had more electrocardiograms in those four months uh, up to November than probably most patients have all their life. My uh, doctor finally got tired of seeing me because he couldn't ever find anything wrong with him. But I, I just felt like I was going to croak, you know. And the fear got so bad I didn't know if I could maintain my, in, my sanity. So I started trying to find some place I could go that would treat my disease my alcoholism, drug addiction, eating, and do something with my physical condition at the same time. I looked all over the country, even started going outside the country. I couldn't find any place. Finally, I called up uh, Central Office for Readers Anonymous in, in California. And they said, we're not supposed to do this, but they gave me the name of two places. And I called them both up, and they were the one I ended up going to was a care unit out in, in Los Angeles. And they had just opened up this program two months before I got there. And I went out there in early December. And um, in the meantime, incidentally, I went up to the research center at Iowa City and let them run me through there. They couldn't find anything wrong either other than I weighed X amount of pounds and was obviously a little hypoxic from trying to move all that around. And uh, I think I knew I was supposed to be out there because everything just happened. You know, there were no plane reservations for months because everything was booked up because of the Christmas holidays and all this stuff. The day I was ready to go, I called up, and five minutes before I called, there was a cancellation. And their clinic was full. They couldn't hold any many people, but somebody left AMA the day I, I wanted to come out. And everything just happened that way. I called my wife up. We just had a baby in, um, oh, gee, September, I think. I can't even remember right now. <laughs> uh, but uh, I talked to her about it, and she knew I, I needed help, and I'm sure she was very afraid for me, too. And so I decided to go out to California. I went out to California, and I went into this unit, and I started learning some things. I can remember, I thought I was in a lot of pain before I got out there. Well, it increased. I didn't know that could happen. I was out there three weeks, and I got a phone call from home at 5 o'clock in the morning. And my wife said, Jamie died. And she didn't say who she was or anything else. And I thought maybe it was a joke. I says, who is this? Well, she says, it's your wife. She says, Jamie died. And I says, well, what happened? Well, she didn't know. He just died. She'd been down at the hospital with him all morning, and, and uh, they couldn't do anything with him. And I was on an airplane by 9 o'clock that morning. And uh, I was going through so much internal turmoil myself. 
And there was so much internal pain, it was hard for me to evaluate what was even happening outside. And I remember asking God to help me with that. And I asked him before I left the, the unit. And on the way home, I was, I told this story with some of you people before, but on the way home, I was riding in the airlines and I was sitting on the port side and I was looking out the clouds and they were serocumulus and I was asking God to help me get some feeling for what was going on because I was already in so much pain it was hard to tell differentiated I really wanted to be able to know what was happening with me and and how to feel and I wanted to know that my family was okay and and I was asking him to give me some kind of a sign to help me understand and as I was looking out the window and watching the, the clouds I could see the shadow of the airlines on top bouncing along the top of the clouds all of a sudden there was a halo all the way around the shadow and I started crying because I knew everything was okay then you know I knew God had taken care of Jimmy regardless of where he was I knew everything was going to be okay at home and I sat there and, and cried and looked at that and thanked God for a long time and I turned around and looked at the back of the seat and there was an emblem on the back of the seat that had the the initials of the airlines on it and I knew I was home because I was flying American Airlines. And I, I knew it was going to be okay. We got home and got all those things done that you have to do. And I sat down and talked with my wife and I told her, I said, you know, I don't feel any better than I did when I went out there. I know I'm not done. But I said, I don't feel I can leave you. I says, you tell me when you're okay enough, and I'll go back. Well, two weeks, weeks later, she came to me and said that she thought she would be okay. And so I went back out to California. I remember when I got out there, they asked me uh, why I came back. They said they had never had anybody do that before. And I said, well, I wasn't done. And they said, well, how'd you know that? I says, well, God got me out here. And he didn't tell me to go home. And they says, well, what if his schedule doesn't match with ours? I, I says, you lose. <laughs> anyway, I started back in the, in the trudge. You know, I finally started to get a feeling for that word at the end of chapter 11 that talks about trudging our road of happy destiny. You know, I always thought it was rolling, sliding, you know. I didn't know the, the word trudge really was significant. And it certainly has been in my life because that's what I was doing. Then something really neat happened to me and it was on the 1st of February. And I remember the time it was 5.30 in the afternoon. I'd been put on an assignment that the only thing I could share was a feeling. If I couldn't share the feeling, I couldn't talk. Now here again, being a perfectionist, I mean, I did it. And uh, I never realized how the inability to share the way I felt isolated me. Because it did. And what started happening about three days after I was on that assignment is I started getting, it felt like a, an explosion starting to occur inside my, my guts. And uh, sometimes I think it must be a lot like what a woman goes through when she's having a baby. And she's got her feet up in the stirrups and she decides, oh, I don't want to have this baby. Right. And... I could feel this coming. <laughs> and I didn't like it. I was still feeling like I was going to die every second of the day. I was still having these attacks intermittently. 
I still didn't know what was going on with those. I wasn't sure what was happening with the way I felt about my son dying and not being at home. And then this was coming too. And I learned at the time that what I was really afraid of was I was afraid if I let this stuff go inside of me that I'd die. I'd hurt somebody. And I'd go crazy. And I just didn't want to do it. But it kept growing. And it kept growing. And at the end of the two-week period on February 1st, it was a Tuesday. I felt so bad that dying really would have been an improvement. And I felt that way anyway, but it was just quadrupled. And I made a decision that day that I was going to let go of this stuff, whatever it was. If I had to die doing it, I didn't care. Because it was no longer acceptable to feel the way I felt. And I prayed that day like I never prayed. I sat with people. I sat without people. I tried doing anything I could to stimulate something to break this open. And it finally did at 5.30. And I screamed and cried so much. I had a blackout for 45 minutes uh, doing that. I don't know what I said or did. I couldn't talk for a week and a half after I was through. My voice was so hoarse. And somebody rewrote the book book that night. Because from then on, every time I read it, it was different. And I started to identify with what people were talking about and the pain and how the things change. I'd made a mistake. I thought the reason God gave me freedom from alcohol and drugs and food because I was working this program and I was getting more spiritual. And I learned out there that that wasn't true. I learned out there that God gave me freedom from alcohol, drugs, and food because he loved me. It was an unconditional gift and I didn't have to do anything for it. That was a real humbling thing. The way I got this to break loose out there is I was down on my knees and I says, God, I can't stand this anymore. You let me die right now. Or you help me right now. And he did. When I came to again, I wasn't feeling any better physically. But something had changed. Something had changed. I had been working for months, maybe ever since I was in recovery, for three years, trying to get God in this program to give me the freedom from feelings. To give me the freedom from the pain and the hurt and the anger and the suffering. I didn't want that anymore. And I kept trying to get this program to do that for me. And I realized that night, too, that God wouldn't do that for me. He had given me freedom from the alcohol and the drugs and the food as an unconditional gift. But what he had also given me along with that that I didn't recognize was the freedom to feel. One of the greatest gifts I've ever been given. It's also cost a lot. But there's nothing I would change. As I started to learn how to do this new thing, which is to feel, to sit with people like you and other people and be willing to take the risk to tell you that I'm, I'm sad or that I'm angry or that I love you. To be able to do those things and take that risk that maybe you won't like me anymore for doing that. Well, I found out that wasn't true. And you know, it's like all those things I was always looking for. Somebody to love me, to be able to love, to understand. To have somebody understand me. When I started sharing the way I felt with other people, they loved me. And the really neat thing is that I discovered for myself is I found out that's how you communicate too. I didn't know that. 
All of a sudden, I was doing the two things I wanted to do most in the world. I wanted to love and be loved, and I wanted to communicate. And then I started doing it with the feel. That was neat. I practice feeling every night. I share them with at least one person every day. And it has brought me so much insight and so much gifts. I left um, that care unit on March 3rd. Really anxious to get home. And I got home on the 3rd. And on the 4th, my wife left me. And she left me with my sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh can't happen, huh? I didn't even know we were having problems. Of course, I was the last to know I had problems with drinking and eating, too. And uh, we were divorced, I think, about three months later. Thank God that he taught me how to feel. Because if I hadn't known how to do that, I don't think I'd have survived that. Because my addictions run in this order. Food, and on, I'd go to it. Because I was addicted to her like I was addicted to everything else in my life. And the withdrawal from that person was tremendous. And there was so much other pain I was going through at the same time, I couldn't separate that either. And I lived in that pain for a year and a half from the time I got sick. And it never stopped. After I got home, I was exposed to a physician's tape called, and her name's Vicki Fox. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of her, but. And I sat there and listened to this tape, and it was on simultaneous drug withdrawal. And it was my story. And I started to realize that all this pain that I was going through was withdrawal from drugs that I'd never gone through because of the sugar and stuff that I'd been using the first year and a half in program. And the attacks that uh, she described in that tape fit me to the T. And if anybody is going through those things or knows anybody is, and if you aren't familiar with it, I'd suggest you get her tape. Because it finally helped me understand. And it gave me more hope. The amount of growth that this process has done for me, there's no way to measure that for me. It's given me the ability to stand up here with you people and have a tear, to laugh, to be really honest with you and share the way I am and who I am. And that's the nicest gift I've ever been given couldn't do it if I wasn't sober. I know that. I guess all those gifts are wrapped up in one. But I'm so thankful. I try to show my thankfulness by the act of gratitude. And this is part of it. I appreciate you people beyond measure. Because if it wasn't for you and people like you, I would not be alive. There is no question in my heart or my mind that I'm here on borrowed time. I've used enough drugs to kill half the people in this in this room. At one time. And I drank that way too. And I did them together that way. And what I noticed today is, I don't know how much drugs, you know, I know what they say in the pharmacy books, but every pound I lose, I got to deal with a pound of stuff that I've never dealt with all my life. And the fear that comes from nameless places haunts me often. And it's not fear of today. It's stuff I never did anything with. Today, I have the opportunity to face it. I don't ask God to take it away anymore. I don't ask to be fixed anymore. I ask God to give me the courage and the strength to walk through it. And then I come to meetings and I hold out my hand and ask somebody to hold it. And sometimes I ask people to hug me. 
And I've had lines of people stand up after meetings to hug me and thank you. Because even though it didn't fix me, it gave me the strength to get through rest that night. And there's no way to thank anybody for that but to be here and do this. Because I do want AA to be here when anyone asks for it. And I do accept that responsibility. I have so many things I'd like to share with you, but there just isn't enough time. It feels like my learning process has catapulted me through hyperspace. And it's like the things that I'm learning are flashing by me so fast. Sometimes I see one that's so good I want to grab it and it's gone before I can sit and study it. I know today God will bring it back if I need it, you know. But it's it's just tremendous. And I have not been bored once in five years. <laughs> As you can tell, that is an understatement. Uh, one last thought, it, it's getting time. I know from personal experience that there is nothing there is no place, there is nobody, there is no thing that I cannot walk through with my 12 steps and my God. And I know that deep where it counts. I am no longer afraid to walk in the valley of the shadow. Because I have done it many times. And I'm not in the shadow now. But if I get called there again, you know it's okay. The neat thing is I know that every time I walk into that shadow... As long as I stay sober, drug-free and abstinent, and I work my program the best I know how, I come out more whole, stronger, and freer. And I don't know about anybody else, but I'm here because I want to be free. I want to be free. And if it wasn't for that, I'd just soon die. But I can tell you, if I was supposed to do that, I would be dead. And I'm not. And I'm getting more and more freedom. The ability to ask a woman to marry me is really enormous for me. Because I thought you got married and you stayed that way. I didn't believe in divorce. I still don't. But it took a lot. I'm learning how to trust again. And yes, it's scary as hell. But today I'm not going to let the fear of a risk keep me in bondage. Ever again. So, I don't get to stay a lot with you this convention. Because i got to run back and do all kinds of the crazy things that... Uh, bride or grooms to be are supposed to do so uh, I'm going to be leaving you tomorrow but I sure envy all of you being able to stay for the rest of the convention I'm so grateful to John for asking me to share because it just helps me tremendously I love you all thank you